turning your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Matthew 14. We've been in chapter 13 for many, many weeks. Finally went to chapter 14, verses 1 to 12 this morning. You know, in any conflict that you might have, whether large or small, there are a couple of things that you must have if you would prevail. The first is you must know your enemy, your opponent, know what he's like, know how he thinks, know what tactics he's likely to use in your dispute. And second, you must be willing to pay the price to prevail. Our country sometimes had trouble with this. We get ourselves into conflicts that we didn't really have the will to win. It doesn't work well. And neither can you win any personal conflict without being willing to pay the price of success. This morning we're going to consider these two necessary elements in regard to the greatest conflict of all, the advance of Christ's kingdom against the dominion of darkness, Satan's kingdom. Let me read the passage first. Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about, reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced with him and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came, took his body, and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. Here we have recorded a heinous act of barbarism. The murder of John the Baptist. So why would God include this in his word? What should we learn from this account? Not an easy question. Let me suggest two answers. The first is this. We should learn that Satan is a wily devil. Satan is a wily devil. Kids, if you're taking notes, the word wily is W-I-L-Y. Wily comes from the old English version of the Bible, the King James Version, which exhorts us to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What are wiles? Well, they're the devil's tricks, his schemes, his evil tactics. Make no mistake, Satan is a wily Clever, sneaky devil. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Why are we even talking about the devil? He's not even mentioned here. 
Well, let's think about the context of this little account in the whole of Matthew's gospel. We go back to chapter 12. In chapter 12, Jesus was accused of doing miracles by the power of the devil. But in reply, he said, no, that doesn't work. As if Satan's house is divided against itself, it will never stand. He said, in fact, that he is working, the fact that he is working of miracles by the power of the Spirit of God shows that the kingdom of God has come into the world because the king has come. And that he, God's king, had come to plunder Satan's household, Satan's dominion of sin and darkness which prevailed on the earth. That, that Jesus the Messiah, God's king, had come to dismantle it, to steal people out of it. That's chapter 12. In chapter 13, then, Jesus gives us several parables which describe his kingdom and talk about the conflict between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. A couple times that's mentioned explicitly. For example, Jesus talks about the devil sowing seeds, that is, the sons of the evil one, in the, in, in the world, in the field where the sons of the kingdom, the wheat, not the weeds, were, were growing. Conflict between Jesus, God's king, and the devil. And now in chapter 14, it begins, as it begins, we're introduced to Herod. Herod, by the way, is one who called himself the king of Israel. He actually had never officially been given that title, but in verse 9, he's called the king. So here's the king of God's kingdom, the Messiah, Jesus. And he's come up against the one who calls himself the king of Israel. In the midst of the advance of God's kingdom described in this gospel, what kingdom do you think Herod represented as he opposed John, the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah? Was Herod a neutral civil authority who had nothing to do with either Christ or Satan? Not a chance. Here is one who claimed to be the king over God's people, but ruled in opposition to God. Who brutally killed God's prophet, John, for confronting him with God's word. You see, in Herod, we see the dominion of darkness in full array. That same dominion of darkness that you and I struggle with every day. And here we learn that Satan, the power of darkness, Satan is a wily devil. For here we see his clever schemes at work. So let me point out three clever schemes that we can observe here. Three things that Herod used in this situation and that he uses in your situation and in mine as well. Three subpoints, if you will, to that first thing about Satan being a wily devil. The first scheme that he uses is to get you to give in to your lusts. Give in to your desires, your lusts. Think about Herod. How did he get in this terrible situation in which he found himself? 
He simply gave in to every desire that came to his heart. That's all he did. Until he was a slave to his own lusts. For example, Herod just had to have Herodias. But she was married to his brother. Well, he has, has to have her. He has to have her as his wife. John the Baptist, the prophet of God, said, no, you can't do that. God's law does not allow that. But he's determined to satisfy his covetous heart. So he just locks John up and does it anyway. Then have established, having established that pattern, he's set up for an even greater cave-in to his lust. He's having a party, and Herodias' daughter, which we can figure out from the family history that we know outside the Bible, she's a teenage girl. Herodias' teenage daughter is dancing, this sensuous, seductive dance, and Herod is seduced by it. And in absolute, complete surrender to his lust, he says, you can have whatever you want. And the result was a great victory for the tyranny of the devil. As the great forerunner of the Messiah, the great prophet John was murdered at the whim of a lust-crazed king. None of us would murder one of God's prophets. But I guarantee all of us are seduced by our own lusts. We live in a world that idealizes coveting. The appeal to our lust is what sells products. These days, it's the way we define ourselves. What particular strain of lust do I cave into? Giving in to every desire is considered the norm of human expression. But our lusts are not harmless and innocent any more than Herod's were. They're the weapons of sin's dominion against the rule of Christ. So we cannot just repeatedly cave in to what we want and never be enslaved. Our desires are like string. Easy to break once, no big deal. But get enough wrapped around you and tied and you are enslaved. Satan is a wily devil. When he encourages you to just give in. Whatever you want, follow your heart. The second clever evil scheme that Satan uses is to tell us to seek to satisfy everyone's opinion. Our, 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 our country is ablaze right now with this whole thing of everybody's desires have to be satisfied. Everybody's opinion has to be satisfied. Herod was a pathetic figure at this point. Mark's gospel tells, tells us he enjoyed listening to, John, listening to John the prophet. But he was afraid of him. Then he felt the pressure from Herodias, this woman that he wanted so much. She wanted John killed. 
And yet he was afraid to kill John because of the public opinion. The public said, no, he's a prophet. You can't kill a prophet of God. However, in the presence of his friends, wanting to look good in their eyes, he finally bowed to the pressure of his peers and murdered John. Herod was a classic politician, really. Always trying to please everyone about everything in order to make himself look good. But he destroyed righteousness in the process. Beware of the pressure of everyone's opinion. Here is a scheme of Satan which is as real to us as it, is, as it was to Herod. Compromise is everywhere. What people think drives us all the time. Everyone wants to look good before his friends. And in the process, obedience to what God says gets lost. This is not just Herod's problem. This is where we live. When I was in college, I heard a man, Dr. Bob Cook is his name. I wrote this quote in the front of my Bible. He says, purpose for the individual weakens in direct proportion to his eagerness to be accepted by his peers. Purpose for the individual weakens in direct proportion to your eagerness to be accepted by your peers. It's easy to look at Herod's terrible actions and see the folly of bowing to the pressures of everyone's opinion. But when we're with our friends, when we're on the job, when we're out socially, we're in the midst of people that we think are more sophisticated than ourselves who reject Christ, we face the same pressure and the same threat of destructive results. For this is a weapon of Satan's tyranny. Satan is a wily devil. Then there's a third of Satan's evil schemes that we can observe here. And that's where he encourages to let your updated conscience be your guide. I say updated conscience because you can train your conscience, you know. You can reprogram it to be like you like it. That, by the way, is why it's so important to have your mind saturated with God's word. Because your evil heart will quickly upend right and wrong to conform to the whims of the day. Leaving you with a conscience, yes, a conscience that guides you, that accuses you and excuses you, but not in the way of righteousness. Updated but distorted conscience. That's what happened to Herod. According to verse 9, Herod was grieved with the atrocity he was about to commit. So why did he do it? He had to carry through on his promise out of integrity. Apparently in his world, a leader honoring his oath was so important that this so-called king 
executed an innocent man without any trial in cold-blooded murder for the sake of being ethical, keeping his word. What a distortion of right and wrong that could only come from the pit of hell. But such a distortion is everywhere in our day. Because the law of God has been replaced by every whim of men and human governments. So we murder unborn children by the thousands to protect the ethic of a woman's right to privacy. We steal from people with unjust taxation in order that governments might restructure society for social justice. And on the personal level, examples are everywhere. We steal from customers. We cheat on our taxes in order to honorably provide for our families. Oh, beware of following your modified conscience, for we no less than Herod are capable of turning right and wrong upside down. This, too, is one of the clever schemes of the evil one. For Satan is a wily, a wily devil. Folks, if we're to participate in the advance of Christ's kingdom, we must learn to recognize and quickly reject the wiles of the devil. Then there's a second truth here. And that's this. God's people often suffer. God's people often suffer. I must tell you, we American Christians have been misled for a long time because God has so blessed this country with prosperity and peace. We have come to believe that a life of ease is our birthright. Oh, we hear of Christians elsewhere suffering terribly suffering brutal persecution, but we take comfort in the fact that that can't happen here. Because we don't do that. And so we raise our children, sitting in comfortable pews, being entertained by clever youth programs, often infused with the world's emphasis on self-esteem, which all comes down to an assumption that God owes us an easy life. But folks, that's not what the Bible says. From the earliest book of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament writings, the testimony of God's word is crystal clear. God's people will likely suffer. And strangely, strangely enough, that message permeates this morning's text as well. When we think of it, John the Baptist who suffered here, he was not just another man. He was not just another prophet. He was a particular prophet that was the last of all the prophets, the greatest in that he's the forerunner who announced the coming of Christ, Christ the King. But his life was characterized by suffering like all the prophets' lives had been. 
In turn, the prophet's affliction was characteristic of the affliction of all God's faithful people who long for his appearing. So in the Old Testament, John is a good example. God's people suffer. But John's suffering also pointed forward to the suffering of Jesus. In fact, it's really interesting to compare notes here. Herod's attitude toward John anticipated Pilate's attitude toward Jesus. Very parallel here. Herod was tortured in, in, in his thinking about John and yet executed him anyway. Pilate was tortured in his thinking about Jesus but executed him anyway. Herodias' hatred for John finds its counterpart in the hatred of the Jewish leaders for Jesus. Herod's yielding to the pressure of his circumstances foreshadows Pilate's yielding to the demands of the mob, though he declared Jesus innocent. And John's burial by his friends who came and took his body sounds very similar, intentionally similar perhaps, to Jesus' friends coming and getting his body to bury it. But the suffering didn't stop with Jesus. The New Testament repeatedly warns that those who follow Jesus will also suffer affliction with him. Let me just read you a few texts that we find in the New Testament. To you it is given not only to believe, but to suffer for his name. In another place, in his suffering, Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Or in another place, it's not by mighty weapons of warfare that we will advance his kingdom, but in our weakness and afflictions that the power may be of God and not of us. And then Jesus' statement himself, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross daily and follow me. In case there was ever any illusion that the appearance of the Messiah would immediately bring an end to all of the affliction which God's faithful servants had long endured, This passage crushes such an idea. Like the prophets of old, John was killed for the message he preached. And like John, Jesus was crucified for what he preached and who he was. And like the Savior, the New Testament apostles were killed and, and afflicted for what they preached. And like the New Testament apostles, those who preach the gospel today may still be killed. Today, God's people who remain faithful, will suffer affliction. Nevertheless, this morning I call you to count the cost and be ready to pay whatever it costs to faithfully serve the Lord and proclaim and live out the gospel. I have no idea what form the suffering and affliction might take for you, So recently we assumed that nobody had their head cut off anymore like John. Well, that's gone down now. But then again, Jesus never said that every faithful believer will die for his faith. That's not true. Only that all will encounter affliction and struggle. So what does that mean? It may mean long, lonely hours of work when everyone else is at ease. 
It may, maintain, may mean maintaining purity and integrity when everybody around you is compromising. It may mean remaining faithful to your spouse when you have a hundred reasons to turn away. Oh, it's not just physical suffering. It might mean social rejection, disapproval uh, by your boss and loss of uh, your job or loss of promotion. It might just be carrying the burden of people in need when all you can do is just pray and you hurt because you can't do it anymore. You don't know how to help them. It surely means giving your life away for the sake of your Lord. Margaret Clarkson, a great hymn writer of our time, listed many kinds of affliction in her great hymn, So Send I You. Let me, let me just read you the first couple of stanzas, which kind of unpacks what that might look like. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken or wandering souls to work and to weep and to, and, to, and to wake, to bear the burdens of a world, a weary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. One way or another, God's people are called to suffer. That's a strange little passage to come to. And what should we get out of it again? Two things. First, learn, if you don't know it already, Satan is a wily devil. We see his clever schemes at work and being greatly successful in Herod. And we come to know that the way he worked with Herod is the way he will work with us. Getting us to cave in to our own desires. Getting us to listen more than we should to peer pressure. And urging us to reprogram our conscience and, conscience and then work with a kind of phony ethic, being true to ourselves. And second, we need to understand that God's people still suffer. The Old Testament believers and prophets suffered. John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was hung on the cross. And all the New Testament apostles and all the churches endured similar suffering to this day. So count the cost. Endure whatever you have to endure and consider it a privilege to suffer affliction because you know and serve Christ Jesus. As Jesus says, as I send you, as my father sent me, so I send you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we would never do the things that Herod did. But you know that the battle with our desires and with peer pressure and with uh, the distorted sense of right and wrong that's always with us, you know, Lord, that this is a war that goes on in our lives all the time. Maybe not just set it aside. Give us a heart to do battle, Lord. And remind us, Lord, that if we suffer, if we face affliction and trouble, it's not unusual that this is what you've called your people to do and it's been true from the beginning. Give us grace to endure 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Printing your bulletin is an affirmation of our faith.